Let us start with prayer. I sound very powerful with this volume. Maybe turn down just a slight tick. Thank you, God. We bless you. We praise you. We give you all the credit and the glory for all the things in your creation. We just focus our minds now on thinking of all the good things you've given us and all the ways you've led us out of disaster in our lives. And even the things that were disasters, the calamities in our life. Lord, at least I can look back and I can see how you're, you were moving in that and you were teaching me something and you were refining me. Even in the pain and the suffering that I went through, I knew it was for a reason. I may not know that reason now, but I see where I am now in my life and I can't deny that you've always had your hand on me. And that's uh, an amazing thing to think that you would care for each one of us in a special way when you are holding the universe together. I pray, God, that you would help us now in dealing with this topic, the fear of man. We've studied how to do apologetics, but now we're getting into the, practi- the practical part of it, um, and uh, this is something that will hold a lot of people back. So I pray that you would give us courage and that you would help us in this course think about our motivations of the fear that's in our heart and um, how to fight against that, Lord, so that way we can be uh, tools in your hand and we can glorify your name by doing what you've asked us to do, which is to spread your word, to teach everyone the commandments, and help them obey the gospel. I pray that you'd focus our hearts and our minds now and you'd help me as a teacher. Forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, there was a couple options, but just through reviewing it through, through the week, even though they were both good, I felt like this had a, the dual purpose of, of kind of connecting with apologetics. You know, a fear of man is a perfect topic right after you got done talking about apologetics and debating people that don't believe. And I felt like it was also, in a weird way, also kind of something that you can relate to your Christian life right away because right? you're going to be talking to your family members. So even though the other one was more practical, like how to study the Bible and, you know, those kinds of things, I felt like this one would, would kind of connect with that as well. So... That's the reason why I picked it, even though there was actually kind of a tie on, uh, <laughs> that's always helpful, right? When you're like, everyone cast a vote, it's a tie. I'm the tiebreaker. So I said, you know what, this, I read both curriculums and I said, you know what, this one's probably the one that I want to go with. So I went with that. Um, I didn't know, ignore anyone. It just, I could tell people were interested in both. Now, when we're talking about the fear of man, uh, they're, they're, the, the way that this is broken down, it's actually seven weeks, but I'm going to try to merge this into five because I only have five weeks before Ed told me that I'm teaching to the 25th of June, and then, you know, someone else has a curriculum after that. So I'm squeezing this a little bit, but that's okay because a lot of those last one, like the last two, are more of like provide a Q&A if people have questions, uh, talk about something more general. It's, even in this introduction, it's more of an introduction more than anything else. So I've kind of merged this a little bit. Um, I've added some stuff to it. We'll see how far we get in an hour. But when we're talking about this topic, it's not just the fear of man, although that's kind of a spicy title, right? It's more of how do we think about fear in general? Because we're thinking about the fear of man, but we have to contrast it with the fear of God, right? Because Jesus himself said, don't fear those who can just kill the body, but fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell, right? Um, I was listening to a a sermon by... um, Douglas Wilson on this topic in preparation, and he made a good point that, you know, that Paul never actually references hell by name at all in his letters. 
which is kind of wild when you think about it. You're like, oh, yeah, I guess so. The only person that was talking about hell, the hellfire brimstone preacher of the Bible, was Jesus. Jesus is the one who was talking about it all the time and talking about this contrast between the fear of man and the fear of God. And that's a a common thing you might see when you read through the Old Testament, this reference to the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? The fear fear of God. Um, Even in uh, when God is talking to Moses and he's talking to the people, this is referenced over and over and over again. If you just do a word study, um, it's kind of interesting because I use the ESV Bible app. And, you know, when you're you know, when you're first studying a topic, you're like, okay, let's search this. And it's like literally just keeps scrolling through the references of the Old Testament to the, the fear of the Lord. And it'll just give you the first couple, and then it says see more, because <laughs> there's so many references to it. So even when you're scrolling through here, like, oh, wow, there are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's in every single book, this reference. So this is a, this is a topic that is actually something I think is important for us to think about. And it's easy to, co- to kind of, how do I put this, cop out of the fear of God by saying it's something like, oh, it's like reverence or awe, which it is kind of. Um, but you also have to think about, it really is the word, uh, I looked up the, the Hebrew word, because, you know, it's a translation, right? So we're translating out of the Hebrew into English. So the question is, what is that Hebrew word? Well, as it is with most ancient languages, even Greek, the same kind of concept that we kind of umbrella as one concept, like love, has multiple words that reference it. So in fear, fear actually has multiple words. The word that is most oftenly translated um, fear that we're talking about is this word called pashad. I might be saying that wrong. But it's actually the fear for one's safety. It's like terror. And I was thinking about that because this will dovetail into the fear of man. We're going to talk about the fear of God next week. So I don't want to spend too much time on it. But if we think about that word, fear for one's safety, and we think about the terms of how we think about the fear of man. You think of, um, if the Lord's on our side, what can men do to me, right? So there's this idea of men doing things to you, right? And that's not something that just lives in our mind, right? There's another word for that. It's called anxiety. <laughs> when we worry about things that could possibly happen, but they don't actually happen, and they're more of like a buildup of like you woke up, and you have all the scenarios of the things that will go wrong in your head. That's not what we're talking about. Although that can feel like fear, right? Being afraid of something. Oh, I'm afraid that I won't get this job. Or I'm afraid that I'll miss this appointment. Fear, fair, fair enough. There's probably like a, a kind of a, closely, a close relation to that. But what we're talking about is not that. We're talking about you're in a situation, there's something very scary like a mountain lion, and you're actually scared of, you're scared of your life. So this fear of man we're talking is not limited to this terror or this idea of like public speaking, like what I'm doing. Like, oh, I'm so, I'm so nervous, I don't want to talk. And it extends to every facet of our lives, every interaction we have with people, right? People we know, people we don't know, people we really care about, people we don't really care about, right? Um, some people we may not even have an opinion of us. We see it at work. We, how do we respond to a person that might be overly aggressive and want their way, right? Um, are you tempted to retreat? you know, given to self-doubt, you know, um, be distracted from what you're supposed to be doing, um, the temptation to gossip at work, right? You don't want to feel like you're outside of, of the greater group. You end up leading a double life, right? Your work life, where I, I act a certain way to be accepted in my work, and then I have a home life where, you know, I can be more of myself. We see it with dealing with conflict, right? Um, in the way that you respond to conflict, 
you can see that your tendency is to fear a man more than God, at least for me. You know, you, you tend towards that. It's more of the default to be looking at the person in front of you and saying, engaging what you're saying, um, especially in a, a situation where you have conflict and say, okay, can I just tell this person what they want to hear to get out of the conflict? Or do I stand up for the convictions and actually um, say what uh, God would want me to say, right? Rather than enable someone's sin in the situation, show them their fault in a loving way, in a gentle way, in a kind way, but not ignoring it. Um, I'm just thinking of times when, uh, you know, I've talked to people at another church because we went to a couple of different churches before we ended up here, and you find out that this person's living with a person they're not married to. It's an awkward thing <laughs> in a church setting to be like, you can't do that. That's not the right thing to do. And all of a sudden there's conflict. Well, why not? You know, um, this is the problem we have with not uh, preaching the law of God too, right? Is that people kind of say, well, there's a really good reason. I'm not doing anything wrong now, right? Uh, even though it's just unwise uh, regardless. And then the question is, do you trust that person? So on and so forth. Not to belabor the point, you're going to rise in these conflicts where it's easier to be like, oh, okay, as long as you're doing the right thing, or, you know, just kind of something that you kind of get out of that situation immediately. We see it in marriage. You know, on the other hand, uh, on one hand, your life is much more uh, naturally exposed to this person you're married to, but in the sense, you're also kind of wanting to smooth things over. You know, you, uh, you want to cover up possibly a purchase that you made that you don't think your spouse will like, you know, um, you hide your, your overbooked schedule. You're like, I'll get that done. And then you're like, why'd you forget that? And you realize it's because you've kind of overbooked yourself. You're doing too much and you're not being honest about that. You can't tell your spouse no. Um, and unfortunately, you know, as sinners, we all tend to try to hide our sins, whatever those sins are, secret sins, things we struggle with. You know, um, just because you're in this, uh, this relationship that should be safer and should be more open doesn't necessarily mean it is right? Uh, marriage can be a place where we give into our fear of man just as much as a time with our, our co-workers or the people that we see, uh, you know, in our daily life. And we even see this fear of man at church, right? I just gave a reference to conflict that I, I was in that was very uncomfortable. And in the same way, uh, the church can be a place where we grow in fearing God more than man. We're more open. Uh, there are some, some uh, faith, I don't even know what to call that, Lutherans, I don't know what we call that, like a sect? I don't like the word sect. But you know what I mean, like, there's, there's other variations of Christian that do things like public admission of sin, right? Like we all would stand up and say we're sinners, and then we'd ask for, not specifically naming our sins, but we would announce that, and then we would ask forgiveness corporately is what the Lutherans do. I kind of like that, because it's something where you can hear everyone else saying it with you, and you're kind of like, kind of establishing this baseline of we need help, we need to be able to confess sin, we want to actually tell people so they'll hold us accountable. And yet, it's, it becomes the more that you're in a church, especially a big church, you end up not doing that more and more, right? And then you kind of go to a church and you realize like, man, everyone, I don't feel like I can tell anyone the sin I'm struggling with because everyone seems to have their life together and I'm the one person that's messed up, right? The funny thing is everyone probably feels like that, right? They're just better at hiding it. So we never want to get there. But you can see that the conflict of fearing what other people will think of you who they'll tell, right? Um, will they invite me to their house anymore, right? Uh, will they let me hang out with their spouse in proximity? Whatever it is, right? We don't know what it is. Like, they're like, well, you know, that guy, he's a liar, so I don't want anyone that I know interacting with that person. When it's like, he's obviously confessing it because he has a trouble with it, so it's not like he's hiding it. 
uh, it's the opposite of hiding it, right? You, I would, you should be more nervous about the person that doesn't tell you <laughs> what they're struggling with because you have no idea, right? So, and even in different cultures, fear of man is experienced in various ways. You know, uh, we're living in the American culture, and so the, the way that we interact with, um, you know, our relationships with our families, um, our ethnic group, like maybe even our neighborhood, the people that we're living with, we have different um, costs, right, to the interactions and the conflict we have. What I mean is that if you are at work and you're bold for Jesus, you're going to have a reaction that your work is going to have towards you, right? Uh, I'm not, and I'm not saying that um, you, that's going to be different in different places. More pla- places are either more or less tolerant of that. Uh, if you have uh, a certain family relationship, like Rolo's told stories about a lot of his family doesn't believe, and he's kind of has a very bad relationship with a lot of them. It's like you can see the cost there, right? He doesn't have that same close relationship with family. You know, the neighborhood that you're in, if they all know that you're the wacko Christian, you know, they're not going to invite you to, you know, barbecues or the, the thing or whatever it is. And so it's something that can have costs in, in our culture. The funny thing is, I was listening to Ray Comfort, and he was talking about this, kind of trying to be encouraging, where he said, what's the worst thing that can happen if you're on the street and you're asking people if they want to talk about Jesus? They just yell no at you. No! Oh, okay, that's it, right? And in a sense, that's true. I've noticed that when I was out in the streets preaching or t- talking to one-on-one, people one-on-one Jesus, it was actually, I would estimate, a thousand times easier than talking to family members because the fact is there's no cost. There's no relationship cost. I talk to that person. They yell at me. I'm like, oh, okay, whew. all right. And then I have good conversations. It's great. But at the end of the day, I go home and I see None of those people ever again, right? A lot of them are from other, out of, especially if you're on Bellagio Fountains, tons of them are from out of town. No one's from Vegas. I mean, how many times have you guys been to the Bellagio Fountains? Right? Never. <laughs> Maybe once you drove past. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I know. I've seen it on Ocean's Eleven. And the point is, is that you have no relationship cost. Your family, though, the people, your, your best friend that doesn't know Jesus, there is a relationship cost there. And even though Ray Comfort is right. They're not going to stab you <laughs> if, if you say something. Like in other cultures, they throw you in prison or they could actually attack you, right? But there is cost, and that cost is real because how we, we're relationship creatures, and if we, don't, if we lose relationship, it hurts, and we don't want to. We have fear there. I'm just being honest about it. You know, I, I don't want to downplay the idea of the cost that's associated. Think about the Jews in the time after Jesus, like in the book of Acts. The Romans made it so that they couldn't hold businesses, right? They couldn't have property. They couldn't go to certain public events unless they bowed the knee to Caesar, and they chose not to. And the entire, there's an entire section in Hebrews that talks about you cannot go back to the way it was, because if you do, you have turned your back on Christ. And it's, I think they even, in, I think it's in chapter six where it says, you're unable to be renewed again to repentance. It's a very serious thing. You cannot, this is a high calling and a high cost, and the world will hate you because they hated Jesus. We try to shy away from that, but I want to be really honest, that is the cost. The cost is worth it, right? It's like getting a million dollars if, you know, your, your friend doesn't like you anymore, right? It's like, uh, well, I guess other people would, that's a bad analogy, right? Money's not as good as relationships. Yes, Julie, you want to have a better analogy for me? <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, we're at the part where it says in different cultures, fear of man is experienced in various ways. Still under number one, um, but yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, the closer you are to those people, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, uh, Ray Comfort has a, a better analogy to, to end that, you know, pellet cleanser. He was talking about how if you're in a plane, someone comes to you, they hand you a parachute, said, wear this, no context, right? Put it on, oh, this is bulky. You see everyone around you, no one's wearing a parachute. You're uncomfortable, doesn't feel good. They look at you, look at that weirdo, right? Take it off. But if you're told as they hand it to you, the plane's gonna go down in about 15 minutes, so you need this on. And then they're trying to persuade other people and they ignore them. No, no, I don't believe you. But you put it on because you believe this person, right? This person's official, right? They have like, they're clearly from the airline. They're handing you a real parachute. You put it on. And it doesn't matter how uncomfortable you are, you're holding on to it, right? Because you believe that there's actual uh, consequences to not having this parachute. That's like putting on Jesus is the example, right? So if we, if we put our minds right in the context, it helps us understand why we shouldn't fear man. We should, we should fear the actual... Uh, you know, um, God and hell and things like that, the actual consequences for our own sin, right? In the short term, we might smooth over certain relationships. We might make things easy in life for a couple of years, but the fact is we're going to have to face God on Judgment Day. So uh, there's a book that's called When, God, when People Are Big and God is Small. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but it is referenced in this uh, curriculum, and there are a couple questions that they uh, have you think about as you're going through this class, because once again, this is an introduction to this idea. Have you ever struggled with peer pressure? Um, the adult ways we struggle with peer pressure is different than children, but um, you still have the pressure to have a good resume, you know, to have a perfect family, a house in the right neighborhood, a certain physical appearance, even a title or service in church, right? All of those things can be pressure, peer pressure, to look a certain way, to kind of um, act a certain way and not to be authentic about the things you're struggling with. Are you overcommitted? Do you find it hard to say no even when wisdom indicates that you should, right? That is a sense in which you have the fear of man, right? You're going to give up good and proper responsibilities to your family, direct family, in order to help other people, which can also be good. But wisdom is balancing that, knowing when to help others and when your family should come first. Do you need something from your spouse, coworker, or your friend? Meaning that, are you seeking some kind of validation from them? And that's why you're uh, saying the things and acting the way you are. Do you feel as if you might be exposed as an imposter? Right, so you're gonna double down on hiding. Are you always second-guessing decisions because of what other people might think? Are you afraid of making mistakes that will make you look bad in other people's eyes? Do you ever lie, especially little white lies? What about cover-ups where you're not technically lying, but you're omitting or you're doing something that um, you're enabling bad behavior? Do you avoid certain people? That's a big one. I do that for sure. Aren't most diets, um, like even when you talk about like your diet and things like that, isn't that done to impress people, right? Um, this is a question of like how, are your, how you're modifying how you what you wear and your physical fitness and things like that. Not because, as Jonathan Edwards says, I resolve to be healthy, to serve the Lord longer, but rather you're doing it because you want other people to comment on how good you look, right? That is doing something for other people and not for the right reasons. In the same vein, do you compare yourself with other people to feel good about yourself, right? Like, well, look at that person. That person's really messed up. At least I'm not that person, right? Yes? On the Jonathan Edwards one? Uh-huh. 
Oh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. He said that what he what he said. I think the actual resolution is: I resolve to eat bitter herbs, and uh, it's it's been a while since I've read it. But he resolved to eat healthy and bitter herbs and work out in order to serve the Lord longer and better. Oh, you're talking about like, yeah, like uh, brain fog and all that stuff too. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. And anyone that's had a, had a experience like eating healthy or eating clean for a little while will notice, wow, I don't have as much brain fog, right? That's what our brother was saying, if you didn't hear him. And he was saying that he feels better, you can serve more, and that's true. Uh, I've said this, this is just a, we can go on an entire... <laughs> This is the entire class about um, the problems with the American West, right? But the fact is, is like, you know, there's a lot of sugar in our food, and it's bad for you. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Just uh, <laughs> cook your own food. So here's the big question in this room full of uh, people fears, if I can call you that, right? We all struggle with this. Um, you know, as we're going through this class, you're going to have uh, these three main categories. I think this is in your handout of fear of man. And I think this is a pretty good way of breaking it down. First is the fear of harm right? You could, there could be a bully that, you, that isn't down the street, or a violent spouse, or a violence in the neighborhood, an angry person you deal with, um, harassment, insults, persecution, racism. The list can go on, right? You're, you're afraid of physical harm or harm in some way. And the most times in this category, fear is not necessarily a bad thing, right? Fear is a survival instinct. We, we should be afraid of certain bad situations and stay away from them. I'm not, so I want to make that clear first. We, there's certain fear that is good, right? It's wise, it's logical. And there's fear that is not really there. We're talking about that, right? It's more of uh, a fear of uh, what could possibly happen. But we always need to be sure that we're fearing God first and foremost. So even if there is a sense that there could be physical harm, say you're preaching on the street and there's people that are getting rowdy and throwing beer bottles, you know that you're doing the right thing even though there's a possibility. So it, it's going to depend on the situation. It's going to require individual wisdom, but you can't always avoid dangerous situations to preach the gospel. But that's different than a person wanting or meaning you harm just because it's kind of a violent situation and you're trying to not get hurt. Second is the fear of rejection, right? Um, this is the one connected to a fear of comparison to others, that each one of us falls short in some kind of social standing, career success, education, body type, perceived spiritual maturity, right? Um, we're constantly comparing ourselves with other people, and we're afraid that if we expose ourselves to them, we're going to be rejected. That's a, that's a real fear. Or, on the flip side of that, we're like that Pharisee who says, well, I'm glad I'm not like this person, and I don't struggle with this or that or the other thing, right? We don't want to go on the opposite side. We don't want to feel contempt or try to start feeling superior in order to cover up that fear that we have. Third is the fear of exposure. We don't want to be revealed for who we really are. The fact is we're all sinners, right? We all struggle with sin. And yet, we're really good, since we're small, to start covering that up, right? Hide it, do it in secret. Um, we're, we're afraid that people are going to find out that we have certain things that take too much time, maybe. Maybe we spend too much time watching TV or watching sports <coughs> or playing video games or even reading, right? We have escapism. Maybe we... Uh, eat too much food, 
uh, maybe we listen to t the wrong kinds of music or television that's not God-honoring. You know, maybe we uh, find ourselves addicted to some kind of, like, uh, drugs of some sort, right? And this is something that each one of these ideas, like what you do, um, what you consume, how you work, are you obsessed with work? Are you obsessed with being perfect, perfectionism? Are you obsessed with creating and, ma and manufacturing uh, something that people will envy? I'm just listing this out. If this hurts, it's because <laughs> it's all gonna hurt us in certain ways. Even in reading this list, I'm like, uh, maybe, maybe I do. You know, it's the, the fact is we build up these things in order to protect ourselves from this exposure, right? We don't want to be told that we are failing. We are whitewashing our tombs all of the time, right? <laughs> Covering up the problems inside. So that's why the Bible talks about the idea of light and darkness, right? People hated Jesus because they didn't want to go into the light and have their dark deeds exposed. So this is something that, this is a bad fear to have, this fear of exposure. Now once again, there are bad actors in our lives, people that aren't Christians, that will use this to, in the wrong way, right? They'll use this to destroy us. So we need to, uh, it's one of those things where some of this fear is well-placed in terms of uh, making sure we lock ourselves down. But there has to be a place or there has to be a person in your life that you can confess your sin to that you're not afraid of exposure, right? So that's part of, I guess this is part of a, a question of really how to, how do we, how do we manufacture, not manufacture, that's the wrong word. How do we encourage, how do we grow up that in the church, right? How do we build um, groups, either D groups or other, that we can confess our sins to one another, um, we can trust one another, and we know that we can help each other, build each other up in the faith, love covers sin, right, as, uh, as the last couple of sermons have talked about, and we can suffer together in knowing that we are still struggling with these earthly bodies that still struggle with sin. Next one. Uh, but before we continue, is there any questions, any, any thoughts about what we've talked about so far? Once again, this is just the introductory course a little bit, and then we're, at, we're about to get into the actual uh, scripture about what does the uh, scripture say about fear of man? Okay. So, who fears man? 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So who struggles with the fear of man? Fear of man is very, is very much a common to man temptation. Apostle Paul said that he came to them with fear and much trembling. Right? So even the Apostle Paul had fear. Fear of men. No. Um, it's not limited to a position or a social standing or a personality type. I mean, we have people who are apparently strong, the weak, the rich and influential, the poor, the timid, the bold, the believer, the unbeliever, everyone universally has some kind of fear. And one of Satan's first lines of attack is to convince you that you're the only one struggling with this particular sin or in this particular way, right? But like I was saying, that's why we're part of the church. We should have someone that we can talk to about this other Christians, and we need to forge those relationships so we can talk about the things we're actually fearing. Why do we fear the man? Past experiences, right? Things, people have caused us harm, pain, difficulty in the past. Pride. We're pride and self-centered, right? Uh, we, pride is really at the heart of the fear of man. We are afraid of 
self-harm. We're like people hurting us in terms of physical or not physical. We're afraid of how people are going to view us, our, so, our self-esteem, if you want to use that word. We're afraid of how people are going to treat us in the future. We have, uh, number three, we have a needs-based view of other people. I need this person's love. I need this person's respect. I need my children's obedience. I need this person's friendship. I need a certain kind of church. I need these clothes. I need this situation. I need this education. I need meaningful work, and I need an understanding boss. So because of these things we perceive or maybe we actually need, we then craft how we appear to that person, and we make ourselves very attractive to them in however we know they will respond. And so what we're doing that, we're doing all of those things, not because it's the right thing to do, but because it gets us what we want, right? And motivation really is the heart of everything when it comes to Christianity, right? Are you doing it for the right reason? Are you doing it for, with the right motivation? Are you doing it to honor God? Because that's only the way you're really going to be guided in doing the right things, right? If you're constantly thinking, is this honoring to God? Am I doing this in a way that God would be pleased with? So, uh, here's a quote from a guy named Ed Welch. He wrote the book, um, when, God is, when People Are Big and God is Small. When psychological needs rather than sin are seen as our primary problem, not only is our self-understanding affected, but the gospel itself is changed. A needs theory suggests that the gospel is most deeply intended to meet psychological needs. In other words, the gospel is aimed at our own self-esteem problem. It is aimed at our tendency to dwell on our failures. It is intended to be a statement of God's love saying that God doesn't make junk. This sounds good to us, but is not the gospel. The good news of Jesus is not intended to make us feel good about ourselves. Instead, the good news humbles us. It tells us that we are not the point, and that is wonderful and joyous news. That's a difficult thing for people to listen to or hear in our society, right? There was a book, what was it called? Um, it was called uh, Christless Christianity. Anyone heard that book? Anyone? It was, it was big for a little while. Um, I, I still have it on my bookshelf. I forget the guy's name who even wrote it. But it's a great book, and it's something that I thought, well, we'll be talking about this for the next 10 years, and now look, I can't even remember the author's name. But one of the things he talks about is how the modern church is, and it's still true today, is caught up in this moralistic therapeutic deism, if you've heard that term before. It's moralistic because people want a sense of right or wrong, right? Well, I'm, I'm moral because I go to church. It's therapeutic because it tells people these things, right? God loves you. He doesn't want you to change. You know, he doesn't make junk or whatever it is, right? All the affirmations that people will tell themselves to say that God is happy with them. And it's deistic because it wouldn't make such controversial claims like Jesus is the only way and, you know, uh, you have to be a Christian in order to be forgiven of your sins, right? You have to believe in Jesus that he died on the cross and rose again from the dead. Um, They'd like the idea that, oh, all religions have a little bit of the truth, right? And so when we think about the fear of man, um, we're going to be also dealing with people like that, right? You're going to be preaching the gospel to people who grew up under this megachurch, moralistic, therapeutic deism, and it's going to be difficult because their entire lives are built around structuring things around their self-esteem. So what does the scripture say about the fear of man? Fear of man originated at the fall. Genesis 3, 6-7. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, 
and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And talks about their fear and how they were hiding from God, right? So you can see where fear comes from. But the fear of the man is short-sighted. Luke 12, 4 through 5 says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after those who can do no more. After, but after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. For the people that are just coming in, I, would, I made the reference in the beginning that Jesus is the hellfire preacher of the Bible. Paul never talks about hell um, at all by name. It's kind of an amazing thing. But one of the things that Jesus says here is, one of the keys is to, because he tells them, you're going to be persecuted, they're going to hate you because they first hated me. But he tells them, don't fear in that context because after they kill you, that's all they can do. <laughs> I guess that's comforting. Thanks, Jesus. It is, if we know where our, our uh, end goal is. But it's so, sometimes we think, we don't think in the long term, we think in the short term. And so in the short term, the idea of being imprisoned or hurt or killed is very terrifying. But in context, it's not, it's not the biggest fear you can have. Um, Douglas Wilson, in one of his sermons, made a, a really good reference about the fear of God and the fear of man. I'll probably bring this up next week, too. He said, you know, uh, whatever your most precious thing in your life, uh, imagine this paperclip, is that this is how you should treat God. God, you can take this if you want. You know, God, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? Take it if you want it. I'm not going to attach significance to this thing that I, I really love, whatever that's a job, a car, whatever it is. Because you could do this, you can't have it, God, but then he's going to take it and you're going to have broken fingers. Right? <laughs> he's just going to break your hand and take it. And, you know, the fact is, a lot of fear that we have shows a lack of trust and faith in God because there's nothing in which you can be afraid of or have anxiety about that changes how the outcome of those things will happen a lot of the times. Right? It's not like I'm going to call up my insurance company and say, you know, I don't need home insurance. What? What are you talking about? Home insurance? Yeah, don't worry. I'm worrying about it every day. It's going to be fine, right? <laughs> it's like, that's not the case. Things happen to us uh, whether we um, know it's going to happen or not. Also, this fear of man is a destructive trap, right? Fear of man, it says in Proverbs 29:25, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. And it is the opposite of love. 1 John 4:18 says, there is no fear in love, but for perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. This is always the thing that people bring up in contrast to the fear of God. is like, well, perfect love casts out fear. But obviously, the Bible holds these two things in tension. There is a sense in which, yes, perfect love drives out fear, but we fear it also has to do with punishment, meaning that we still have to worry about that if we mess up, we're going to be punished for it, right? The idea is that if you acted perfectly all the time, you would have no fear of uh, punishment, but when you don't, that's when you're punished. It minimizes the nature of our position in Christ. This is the next one. Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here you have... Paul, encapsulating in such an exhaustive way the idea that we are in Christ, we are forgiven our sins, we have a future and inheritance, all the wonderful things of Romans 8, 
But he makes it clear at the end of this that that does not mean that we won't have hardship. We won't have persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. We're still going to have to endure those things. But we have to keep our eyes on the future and our relationship with Christ. And of course, Scripture is full of not just teaching about the fear of man, but examples as well. It talks about how Abraham feared that Pharaoh would kill him because of his wife's beauty. Lot demonstrates that he was fearing man uh, more than God uh, when he was engaged in the situation in Sodom. Right? Like, before the angels showed up, he was living in some kind of weird situation with them, right? And some kind of, uh, I don't know what, cohabitation, I don't know the word for it. But his particular fear of these people of Sodom and Gomorrah had bitter fruit that bore into the lives of his family. Jacob flees to Laban because of the fear that Esau will kill him. Moses, as a young man, flees after killing a man, fearing punishment and death. Later in his life as leader of Israel, he strikes this rock, and that anger with the people caused him, uh, caused him to fear them more than he trusts and fears God. Aaron gives in to the Israelites' demands to fashion idols from gold, and then defends his motives and actions before Moses. It's kind of a wild thing, right? Is that after he fashions the golden calf, he kind of defends himself. It's not like this is clearly a problem. Um, Samson gives in to his nagging wife, and later in his response to Delilah, his fear of man was met with an immediate and tragic result. Saul responds in jealous anger to David's rise. Jonah is outraged with God's compassion upon Nineveh. His fear of man was manifest in his hatred towards the Ninevites. The Pharisees feared both the response and the opinions of other people. They looked down on people they felt weren't as good as them. And and Peter himself denied Christ. Later, Paul confronts Peter for not standing up to the Judaizers. He endorsed legalistic behavior because he feared their opinion, and so he confused the gospel, right? In one sense, that's, that's encouraging, right? Even Peter and Paul had struggles, right? But in a sense, we also see the problem that this can also affect even people we consider kind of the top tier, if I, if I can say it that way. I know we don't rank each other, but I mean, Peter and Paul, I'd be pretty cool to meet them. And yet, even they struggled with, with issues. So what do many of these examples have in common? The Lord used weak vessels to accomplish his purposes, right? I think that's the takeaway here. It doesn't matter how big of these names are, and these are big names, right? This is Israel and Abraham and Moses and Samson and Jonah and Peter. and You know, these are, these are big names. And yet, the Lord used these vessels to accomplish his purpose, regardless of their fear of man. They were able to, in a sense, get over this fear or be forgiven of this fear and then become uh, faithful later. So even if you struggled and you feel guilt about that, guilt of this fear of man, which is natural, I think we all struggle with guilt when we don't tell our family member or our friend the gospel. Or, you know, I had a situation where uh, a guy that I preached the gospel to for a while, um, he was going through a lot of marital problems, and he was asking for help, and I told him, the gospel is the only thing that's going to help you, right? Uh, he's like, oh, you know, I see how, you know, at peace you are and all these different things, all the softball questions. You're like, great. But then I tell him the gospel and he rejects it. He's like, well, I don't believe that. I just want a quick fix. I want something that's going to patch over this rough patch with my wife. And it just, I told him it's, I mean, you can love her more and here's how you do that. I mean, I'm not going to counsel you. There's nothing you can do. But I will say though, I was like, but if your heart's not in the right place, it ultimately won't matter, right? You're just going to patch it over and then hide the sin that you're, that you're not willing to tell me that you're struggling with. And the sad, rela- the part of that was because of 
issues with that marriage. They ended up getting divorced, and then I didn't really talk to him. Then I found out, probably about two years later, that he died tragically. And I had a lot of guilt about that, because I was like, he was hurting in that situation. Maybe I should have reached out to him more. Maybe I should have helped him more. Maybe I should have, um, when I, if I go to his funeral, maybe I should preach the gospel to his family members or something. I felt like I had to like justify the things that happened. Now, I've come to understand that I did preach the gospel to him, and it's something that we're all going gonna to lose people like that. And so it's more of guilt of maybe my own performance or something. But the, the point is, is that I, I think that when we have situations where we didn't do enough or we didn't preach the gospel or we didn't do whatever it is, it's, it can build a lot of guilt and shame. And then we don't want to act like, once again, we start acting like, oh, well, I have everything under control. I'm doing the right thing. When, if we're honest, each one of us struggles in some way with some person about not telling them the gospel or not trying to um, be honest with them about the sin in their own life because we're afraid of how they're going to react to it. We're afraid of if they're going to cut, them, cut us out of their lives. And that's difficult. But the Lord will use you if you are faithful and that's what you desire. So what fruit does the fear of man bear in our lives? It bears discontentment, unhealthy dependence on others, cynicism, bitterness, lost opportunities, disunity. We get so used to living with the fear of man, I think we often underestimate how severe an effect it has on us. But scripture says quite clearly, you cannot fear both God and man. When we fear man more than God, the impact is devastating. So, question. Question for you guys. What are some ways which you've seen bad fruit from the fear of man in your own life? Right? You can answer this in your head. Right? Think about that question. Because this is kind of the idea that we want to we be thinking about. We want to be uh, considering our own, our own, you know, it says in the Bible, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Right? There is a sense in which there is a good fear, a fear of the Lord, where we're saying, am I living my, right, my life in a way that is honoring to the Lord? Am I doing the right things? When this person I care about dies, will I at least be able to say, well, I gave them the gospel. I tried. I did my best, right? I, it, was, it was between him and the Lord, but at least I gave that person the answer, right? Um, so that way, uh, I can't remember the, the scripture. It comes to mind now. Maybe someone can help me out. But there's a scripture where it says that uh, if you warn a person, their blood is not on your hands, but if you don't, it is. Ezekiel? Yeah. And I think about that. Sometimes when you read the Bible, it's, it's in a weird way, it's sometimes worse because you, you're like, that's in there? Oh, no. <laughs> right? <laughs> and I realize, oh, no, the calling of the Lord is high. Number four, before we close, let me make one clarification that's important. There is such thing, as I said, a legitimate fear of man. But that's in contrast to the sinful fear of man. So how do we distinguish between the two? The short answer is, as I mentioned earlier, is that it's not about giving off a certain kind of impression, right? Um, don't give the impression that there's not a right and appropriate way to live, right? There is. But we have to balance this. This is always the difficult part whenever you're talking to someone. Balancing this with gentleness and respect, right? Um, caring about a person in a real way. Uh, this is something that I've struggled with, and, and I see it, I've seen it in street preachers that I've, that I've interacted with, that almost their defense to the rejection of the world is a sense of superiority and that they have the right answers and they're better than other people. 
Not, not with all of them, but there have been a few that that's the problem that they struggle with is that it's a self-defense mechanism. Well, I have the truth, and they don't really, you get the sense they don't really care about the people they're preaching to. And you see Paul with tears and pleading, begging with the people he was talking to, right? Going to the synagogues and wanting them to believe, reasoning with them, asking, you know, uh, having these debates, these conversations with them. I really think that that's the attitude we need to have. Our being hurt hurts. So we, we create self-defense mechanisms, walls to make it so that we're not affected. But, in the situ- but in the, it's not the right way to go about it. At least that's the, the sense I get from Scripture. We really need to care about the people we're talking about. Um, I remember reading that there's a nerve in the back of our necks that's kind of like, I don't know how to, it can tell, you can tell when someone's like not giving you the whole story. Um, I, I don't know, I, there's a colloquial term for it, so I'm like trying not to use that in church. But it's like, you know, you can tell when someone's giving you, you know, like a wrong impression or they're lying to you or maybe they're fudging the details a little bit. And that's why sometimes you, you can kind of sense in a weird way, like, this isn't true. I don't know what the whole story is here, but I can tell someone's, they're, they're holding something back. So even when we think we're good at it, we're not really, right? We're, we're not really pulling as much over on people that we think we are. So it's better just to be honest. It's better to actually try to find someone to confess to or even cover it up in a certain amount of anonymity. I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, saying, I struggle with something right now. I just need your prayer over this situation. Um, I can't get into the specifics because I, of gossip or slander or whatever it is, but it's hard. Pray for me. And be honest about the things you're struggling with. Any questions about that whole section? I know we co- covered a lot before any questions. We can always ask me afterwards as well. Number five, the gospel meets our fear. We cannot stop fearing man on our own. There is one who did not give in to the fear of man, but gave himself up, so that we could fear God rightly and be freed from the fear of man. Early we heard from Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And in Romans 5, 5 through 11, Paul gives us more details of Christ's love for us. It says in, uh, let's turn there, Romans 8, 5. And we're starting in verse 5, Romans 5, 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's a very powerful uh, section. Um, there is, at one point I had that memorized. I need to memorize it again. It, it really sets up the gospel in a good news, bad news type of way, right? It's like everyone wants to imagine that they're good. And, in a, and they think, well, you know, um, and this, this gives the contrast, right? It says, 
Would you die for a person? Would you take their place? Would you substitute yourself for an ungodly person, a person from prison, right? Like, you know, there's this horrible person that did whatever it is, fill in the blank. Would you substitute yourself for them? No, right? That's what they're saying. But if that person was a righteous person or a good person, at least in the eyes of uh, society, perhaps, maybe you would, right? If this person was really great um, and they're like, they're going to be killed by this unjust government, would you substitute yourself? You might say yes, but that's not the case. They are the worst kinds of people. Uh, I should say we are all the worst kinds of people. We are all those prisoners rightly convicted for horrible sins against God, and yet God took our place. That is the gospel, that he died for us while we were weak, while we were sinners, and he reconciled us to God by his death. And being resurrected, we are now saved by his life. If you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, consider these truths. You cannot be condemned by the rejection of another person. The love and acceptance and covering you needed most was provided to you at the right time while you were still powerless in your sin. Without Christ, apart from relationship with God, we can only live in horizontal comparison, meaning that we only can think of ourselves in terms of other people. But you are free from the law of sin and death. Christ has paid the price for your sin and absorbed your condemnation into himself. The greatest rejection you could ever face, the wrath of God himself, was received by Jesus Christ. The greatest shame and exposure you could imagine was already experienced by Jesus. What should that do to us? It should free us. It should free us not simply from the fear of rejection, shame, and eternal harm. It frees us now to fear and love God with all of our hearts and to love our neighbors and enemies as ourselves. Gospel freedom isn't simply freedom from condemnation. It is freedom to relationship, freedom to a life focused not on our own covering and protection and escape, but towards loving others, just as Christ has loved us, right? This is how our minds should be focused. This is how we should think of it. We need to think about other people. Now that we have the truth, now that we've been saved, we have to think about saving others, right? We have to think of others more highly than we think of ourselves, it's obviously not easy, right? <laughs> it makes it seem in a lesson that this is a simple thing. It's not. It's a, it, I think it's a lifelong struggle. Um, I think that the, the devil and the demons, they are active, um, not in so much, uh, they've changed their strategy, right? And in the past, there was possessions, things that were kind of obvious. Now, it, it, it is more of a spiritual battle where we struggle with these things on a, in a way that we can't even see. We can kind of feel it. We can kind of see it. We can see the bad relationships. We can see the influence on the world, but we can't point to it in any way. I don't even think the people being influenced are aware that they're being influenced. I don't think it's like the way it used to be. I think it's something that um, is subtle. And so the, the struggle we have is not against flesh and blood. It's against these spirits, these principalities. And without Christ, we're lost. We don't, I, always liked, I always think it's funny when you see a movie where there's a possession or a house or something like that, and they never go to a priest. They never go to the Christian at all. Like, I'm going to figure this out on my own, and I'm going to make a videotape or something. It's just, it's kind of wild to me. I'm like, guys, really? It's just, I'm clearly spiritual. Clearly there's a demon here. Uh, I, I, it's just wild. They always try everything but the thing that seems most obvious. At least the old exorcism movie, they got a Catholic priest, right? It's like, that's the bare minimum, right? Point is, we struggle with spiritual battles. The fear of man is not just something that happens inside of you in, in a vacuum, right? 
There's all of these things that are affect, uh, affect, affecting you all the time. This, this spiritual battle that's affecting you. You're not even aware it's affecting you, but it is. Uh, another analogy is, you know, I'm sure you've heard this, you know, the two young fish are swimming in the sea and an older fish swims by and says, hey guys, how's the water? They're like, the water? Right? They're fish. They live in it all the time. They're surrounded by it. They don't realize it, that there's, uh, there's water in there. So in the same way, we are affected by culture in such a way that we're not always aware of the, the effects it's having on us, the influence it's having on us, the things we're breathing in, the things we're thinking about. We need to be aware of that. We need to have our minds open to that. And the only way we're going to do that is if we have the clarity of God's word. If you're reading your Bible, you have that clarity. You're renewing your mind, right? So don't shy away from that. Okay, so we have a couple minutes left, about five minutes. If there's any other last questions or comments or thoughts. No? Great. So the next uh, week, we're going to talk about the fear of God. So if you have any questions talking about that or scriptures that you want to cover, um, you know, you, we'll always have time at the end to, to share a little bit. So let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for um, all the good things that you've given us, all the blessings you've given us, and most, uh, other than even just earthly things, Lord, I, I thank you that you sent someone in our lives to preach the gospel to us. I thank you that however the means were that we heard the gospel, that we believed it, and that it changed our hearts and our minds. It seems so obvious to us now the truths of the scripture, the truths of the gospel. But there was a time where we were enemies and it seemed like foolishness to us. It's an amazing thing. And I, we pray for that same miraculous transformation in the lives and the hearts and the minds of the people we care about the most. I know each person here has someone in their minds, has someone in their lives that they deeply, deeply desire for them to know the truth of the gospel. And yet we run into roadblocks of arrogance and fighting and debate and all of these things that we struggle with. We struggle even tell them sometimes because of the damage to the relationship, the damage to the family. Um, you know, Lord, you know the things we struggle with, and it's hard. And sometimes it's easier to ignore and to, to just fear man more than you, to hide away from the hard conversations we have to have. But Lord, I pray that you would give us courage and boldness. Give us a love for you and a, and a realization of the forgiveness of our own sins that is so precious to us that we would risk those things for you, that we would bring you honor and glory, and that would be our desire. Even if we struggle to find that desire, Lord, give it to us. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, help me. And I pray, Father, now as we go into service that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, not be distracted with other things, but to give you this, this Sabbath day to focus on you. Thank you, God, again, for these people, for the church, for our pastors. I pray now that, in, that you would help us to worship you. Forgive us our sins in Jesus' name. Amen.